So now for our big announcement. So for all of our active Patreons, we're going to actually start releasing Patreon-exclusive interviews. So starting September 1st, all Patreon members will be given a special unique URL. And with that URL, you'll get access to a new Patreon episode each month. And so if you're not a Patreon member yet and you want access to these special interviews, well, you should join before September 1st because after that, we're going to raise prices. And as we begin to release more and more Patreon episodes, the prices on all tiers will start to increase more and more. So again, if you want to lock in your price, well then scroll down to your episode notes below to find out how you too can become a Patreon member. So that's it. Uh, thanks for tuning in and let's get on to this interview with Mike McDermott of FreshBooks. The best part about starting the business to me was not knowing. This is this adventure, this completely unclear and uncertain way of how you get from point A to point B. And one of those lessons is I just used to run myself into the ground all the time. You are going to spend more time with the people you work with than you will with your family. I think the place where I got it wrong and a number of times is The biggest battle is between your ears. Good luck. So if you want to introduce yourself, give us your name, your location, your age, and then tell us a little bit about your company. Then we'll reel it back to the beginning and how you got here. My name is Mike McDermott. I'm the co-founder and CEO of FreshBooks. I'm based in Toronto. My age presently, I believe is 42, but I rarely remember. It might be 41. Who knows? FreshBooks is ridiculously easy to use invoicing and accounting software that's in the cloud. So you can easily create and send invoices, track expenses. I like to say if you invoice, you need FreshBooks. And believe it or not, we're number two for small business accounting software in America. Sounds exciting. I never thought I would feel that way about accounting software. Yeah, that's. I imagine most people don't think that way when they're thinking of accounting or bookkeeping software. No, I mean, there must be some people who always knew that was their thing. But for me, you can get really excited as an entrepreneur and frankly, just a person about solving problems. And sometimes those problem spaces may not have been the ones you were dreaming of or thinking of anytime prior to stumbling upon them and finding yourself within them. So how big is your company today? We're a little over 300 people and we're hiring about 50. Your main location, where are you located? Or is all the people underneath one umbrella there? Or are you diversified out? We're based in Toronto, Canada, and about 305 people of our 310-person workforce are based in Toronto. And so we have a handful of people who are elsewhere. Were you a CPA growing up? Is this why you decided you wanted to get into the accounting software on the cloud? I am not an accountant by trade. I built FreshBooks to solve my own problem. I was running a small design firm using Word and Excel to build my clients. I saved over an invoice, said there's got to be a better way to do this. I had studied uh, bookkeeping in high school and accounting at business school in undergrad. And I actually kind of secretly didn't love those subjects. I just found the math involved was not always the place where I wanted to spend my time. And it turns out solving the problem of making this easier for people so they can spend more time on other things did in fact be become a very interesting problem to me. So the company is about 16 or 17 years old, it looks like? Yeah, the beginning years, the actual founding was in 2003. Technically, I saved over the invoice and started working on something, but I wouldn't say we were really much of a company till after 2006. We're over a decade old, depending on how you score keep, you know, not too much more. You said you had a company before this. Do you think that's the best place to start in your story here? 
I'm happy to start wherever you believe would be most impactful. I can start with the business before I left business school in fourth year and started two companies so we can start there. That's probably the most logical place. Okay. Yeah. That's the main thing is I try to keep it chronological for everyone who's either mowing the lawn now or doing dishes or whatever, so they can easily see your points in the story to how you got to where you are today. Yeah. If you want to talk about dropping out of college, I guess your fourth year and then starting those companies, why don't we just pick it up from there? I studied business in undergrad and took computer science electives by choice. The tech industry was not as much a thing back then as it is today. So this is sort of late to mid 95 sort of territory. I was in school there and I actually ended up leaving business school in fourth year and starting two businesses. And one thing led to another. And the first business was an event business and that event business had a caterer and uh, I had taught myself how to build websites to promote the event. And then that caterer needed a website. So I started building websites for other people and I grew that practice and ultimately was sending invoices and this kind of thing until one day I accidentally saved over an invoice. That day I had been frustrated with how I was running my business at the time because I never knew who owed me money or how much they owed me or if I had taken a check that I'd collected to the bank and dropped it off and I'd have to go back through my inbox and my bank accounts and I like to call it practicing forensic accounting probably every six or eight weeks to actually figure out where am I. I didn't have a good system, but I also didn't want to use the accounting software that was available because I found it really cumbersome. And so I decided to build a simple way to bill my clients. And it started off with basically a website where they could log in and view an invoice. And it was really rudimentary by today's standards, but they kind of liked it. Then it dawned on me that other people might like this thing. And I sort of had a co-founder who together, we just worked on this product for the love of it. There was no concept of how big this thing could be or what it might become. And this is sort of 2003 territory. So, you know, a lot of things we take for granted with the apps and the ecosystems, whether it's iOS or app stores, those kinds of things. It didn't even exist. And we started building a cloud company before the term cloud had even been coined. But we stuck at it, ended up moving in those early years into my parents' basement for three and a half years. We were six people when we left. Again, we're about 300 people today, trying to hire 50 people right now. It's been quite a run and I'm really proud of the company we've built for a whole bunch of reasons from the quality of the product to the way we choose to serve customers and proud also to be number two in America for accounting software. I imagine 22, 23, when you moved back into your parents' basement to actually start this company? I think I was a little older than that. Math could be wrong. I think I was sort of 26, 27 territory. Why don't you tell us about that? I mean, as far as it sounds like maybe you had to take a step back. If you're talking about moving in your parents' basement at that point in time, I don't know if you're living alone or with friends and then had to move back home to save money to build this business. The impetus for moving back into my parents' basement was actually because I'd been living in a neighborhood. Toronto's a rapidly growing and actually in some cases gentrifying city. It's really you know, just growing gangbusters, truly world-class place. And I ended up having to move from two apartments. I was renting in houses because the neighborhoods were changing so fast. And so when I moved into my parents' basement and I took the business with me, I was working from home and I've been doing that for years. And I came back just to house sit for them because they were going out of town for a couple months. And then we didn't leave for <laughs> three and a half years. So it wasn't driven by a financial desire to save money and go build this thing up, but it proved to be very helpful because we had super low overhead over that time. Who's we? I had two co-founders for the business, Joe Sawada, who's a doctorate in computer science at University of Guelph up here today, and Levi Cooperman, electrical engineer, who is consultant prior to joining us. And I met Joe through a shared passion we had playing ultimate Frisbee. 
and he knew Levi, who also played Ultimate, but from back, they grew up together in Salmon Arm, British Columbia. So this is kind of an all-Canadian story, though Levi is a dual citizen. Anyhow, the three of us co-founded the business and built out that small initial team with another software developer, another Daniel Sang, and Jeff Sarmiento. All those folks are still with us today. And there's a woman, Kathy, who we miss dearly today, but uh, she decided to move on when we moved out of the basement. So what was the best part about getting started in the beginning? Because I know a lot of people who might be in that situation now might be stressed out about how difficult it is to get the business up and running, but it's also important to live in the present, I think. And now we're going to be talking about your past at this point in time, but just looking back, what was the most enjoyable parts of actually growing the business in the beginning? The best part about starting the business to me was not knowing. This is this adventure, this completely unclear and uncertain way of how you get from point A to point B. And I am somebody who loves that. That's not everybody's cup of tea, but trying to figure that out is actually kind of what makes life interesting in my books. And so as the three of you guys started the actual company, can you tell us what it was like starting it early on? I mean, as far as like the hours you were putting in, and I guess it's good to have co-founders to at least someone to have lean on, because I know that becomes a difficult part for some of the people who listen as well, as far as like, obviously there's ups and downs, and we're going to talk about that in your story. But even in the beginning, having people that you can relate to and talk to about your business definitely helped, right? Yeah, Joe and I were at it for about a year before Levi joined us. And I will say we started it as a side project. It wasn't full time for either one of us. I had my agency and we'd just get a couple hours at it here and there. And Joe was a sort of an associate professor at that time. And he'd work on it a day or two a week. But it was a real passion play. And we fed off each other. We kind of like fought about the silliest things and fought in a good way, fought to make things kind of better versus each other. And so there was a lot of friction. And that was the source of motivation to us both in those early days. And then Levi joined us and kind of balanced us out a little and made for a nice complimentary group. So this was a side business for all of y'all and you all had your own kind of own businesses at the same point in time? Everyone was part-time on it in the first year. So that was Joe and I. And then Levi actually left consulting to become the first full-time employee. I thought he was just nuts, but he was the first full-timer. Why don't you tell us about how you're able to grow in the beginning years? Again, that's an important aspect. Like who was your first customer and how were you able to start gaining customers? Our first customer was CR3 Media. They effectively fell out of the sky. We had no idea kind of how we got them. I did get on the phone with them and ask them how they found us. And the reason it was all such a mystery is because from day one, we built for owners and we went largely direct to owners over the internet. And so I had a background in search marketing and these kinds of things. One day, somebody came and signed up and then we had lots of people trying us out, but then eventually chose to buy. That was it. It was kind of search early days of relatively earlier days of search marketing, internet advertising, that kind of thing. That has been the foundation of our growth strategy for a lot of our history. And how much did you charge your first customer? I believe he signed up for $9.95 a month. Do you think like you made the right choice as far as like pricing? Because again, that's I think a hurdle that some of us come up with, especially when we're starting a business. They call it pricing and packaging for a reason, because I think there's two actual components to it. I would say we probably did better on our pricing than our packaging in those years, because you kind of have this collection of things and you're not sure how to position them and what to put in a package. That was hard. We had to learn about it. We didn't know hey, what is the threshold between somebody? We had a kind of freemium offering from the get-go. We didn't know that was novel, but I think we gave away like 50 clients at the outset. And now that's like, hey, we have a trial. And after a time period, you sign up and become a customer. So we were guessing, to put it kindly. And we didn't have clear ideas around who our customers were, how many clients they actually had. That was the hard part. In terms of the pricing, I mean, we had sort of three plans and they were sort of $9 and $29 and $59. That part, I think, was fine, but the packaging was hard. 
So do you have any suggestions on anyone who's trying to package that today of something online and ideas or concepts that would help them? The way I think about pricing and packaging, or I would encourage you to think about pricing and packaging a product, if you're just starting out today, and bear in mind, like there's all kinds of different products. So I sell software that's a subscription over the internet. So there's a business model in there that kind of predicates how pricing might go. But I think some of the fundamentals are pretty similar. I think you want to understand what is the value you offer to your customers and how do they perceive and articulate that? Not what you think, forget what you think. You need to go out and ask them like, hey, in your opinion, what's the biggest benefit of our offering? And just be quiet and listen to the answer to that question. And what it turned out for us, it was save time, get paid faster, make more money. And all three of those are valuable. We dined out and really continue to dine out on time savings. You know, if we save you four hours a month and you're a lawyer who bills $100 an hour, let's say, you know, paying us $20 a month so that you can earn 400 that is a good equation. I think that's how I like to come at like, hey, how should we be priced? You should argue we should charge more than that. So then you got to consider, okay, what are the alternatives priced at? And that kind of thing. Yeah, understand the value, communicate your price and the reason for purchasing in terms of that value people A, want to get and you B, can deliver and then charge a percentage of that. This episode is sponsored by another great podcast. It's called The Meb Faber Show. The Wall Street Journal named it one of the top five investing podcasts that you should not miss. And if you're looking to learn from some of the brightest minds in finance or simply want to know more about investing in a casual and fun format, then it's a must listen. The show is hosted by Meb Faber, CEO of Cambria Investments and an award-winning ETF manager. The goal of the show is to help you grow and preserve your wealth by giving you new investing insights and ideas. So check out the Meb Faber Show wherever you enjoy your podcast. That's Meb, M-E-B, Faber, F-A-B-E-R. You don't want to miss it. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially for small businesses. You don't have the time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. And old school payroll providers just aren't built for the way you work today. Gusto is here to change all that. They're making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. In fact, nine out of 10 customers say Gusto is easier to use than other payroll solutions. Gusto also saves you time. 72% of customers spend less than five minutes to run payroll. Don't believe all the good things you're hearing about Gusto? Well, just Google them. People love Gusto. And how often do you actually hear someone say they love their payroll provider? So to help support the show, Go to gusto.com forward slash millionaire. They're offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. You'll get three months free once you do your first payroll. And again, the link is gusto.com forward slash millionaire. Would you just ask them like, how much is this worth to you? Because I'm trying to figure out exactly what questions you might want to ask your customer. Because to me, I'm not scared to ever call a customer. And some people might be. It's actually just trying to set it up or trying to get that information, like you're saying, coming back to me. So what's your suggestion on doing that? In my experience, most people are really poor researchers. If you ask a question like, hey, do you think this thing's worth $50? Versus a question like, how much do you think this thing's worth? I'd much rather ask the latter one, how much do you think it's worth? And see where people go. That's a fact. Pricing is an interesting thing. Again, the way I would come at it 
is I would try to understand the value. And if I know I save you four hours or more a month, and I know you make this much and you're time-based and that's how our customers work, I chose pricing based on that. Again, the competitive consideration. In my experience, I've never found actually asking customers how much you should charge to be a good path because they get in a very conflicted place where they're like, oh, it's great, but don't charge that because I don't want to be <laughs> charged that much. I find direct questions around pricing are not useful, but actually dimensionalizing value to be much better. So would you say basically kind of what you've distinguished, like, hey, this saves you four hours and then you kind of back end what the value is versus saying exactly like, hey, how much is this worth to you? That is how I'd approach it. Yes. Exactly what you said is like, if I'm a customer, I don't want to exactly tell you how much value it is because I'm getting value out of it. So I don't want you to increase the price, even though I'd gladly pay maybe double the price. So I definitely understand kind of what you're saying there. Like you get conflicted reports as far as them saying, hey, it's worth this much to me, but they don't want to tell you that, right? Yeah, it's a conflict of interest, almost like one of the best examples out there. Sounds like everything's going well as far as you're a couple years in and you're moving out of your parents' basement. I don't know if anyone would describe those early years as a huge success. So we had 10 customers paying us $9.95 a month after basically two years working on this project. You got a PhD, an electrical engineer, and a guy who went to business school. That's not success by any classic dimension. But if you scratch underneath it, we had a lot of people signing up. We had our packaging wrong. So not all those people were choosing to pay, and in fact, a very low percentage. But the thing that was successful was we had this great affinity for the customer and serving people. And we really built this culture around like a huge part of the satisfaction for me still to this day and for years and years is actually being in service of others and creating and delivering to them things that they find value and help them. And in those early days, we were answering all the phone calls and doing all the emails and sort of very meticulously looking over them and really considering them because we were trying to learn from our customers. And that, again, was part of the adventure. So there's a lot of fun. So I think we were having a lot of success building a great connection to the customer, a very customer-centric company. We had people trying our product out. We had word of mouth emerging. But financially, I don't think anyone said we were a success. How were you able to move out of the parents' basement then? So over time, the nature of subscription businesses, we were growing like hundreds and hundreds of percent every year. I don't know, not less than 300% a year, but of small numbers. And so you go from having 100 customers to 300 customers to 1,000 customers to 3,000 customers. This was kind of how we grew and how we thought about what success was. That enabled us to have, in the nature of the business model, being a subscription business, we had very strong predictability and foresight into what our revenue was, which gives you the confidence to say, hey, we can move out of the office. Now, we were not profitable in those early years. Then you think about, well, how much capital do we need? And the three of us had put some dollars into things. And my mom co-signed a line of credit. So we got $50,000 that we could use thanks to that line of credit. And then along the way, we bumped into a couple of people who wrote us $50,000 checks. So that's kind of how we got going. Was it hard to convince your mom to do the line of credit for y'all? My mom is a shrewd negotiator. She co-signed the line of credit, so she wouldn't give us $50,000, which she said is, you boys are responsible, but I will co-sign it. So it was backstop, so the bank was happy. We had the capital. But she also negotiated herself the option to get some warrants on that and convert it. <laughs> so she's done pretty well on that co-signing of that uh, line of credit. 
I guess you're a couple of years in, you're getting momentum from at least the customers, it seems like. So at least that's positive. And even if a couple of years of your break even with the business, which it sounds like you're still were negative, right? Or you weren't even at break even after the first couple of years? I would put it as technically true. We were probably burning a handful of thousands of dollars a month, right? So it wasn't like it was a huge astronomical burn, but we also recognized that, hey, we're running these ads and things like that with their internet marketing and we would just grow faster if we could spend more. So it was pretty obvious that there was plenty of room to invest to accelerate growth and didn't want to be cut our nose to spite our face. Like I think if we had not invested, we would not be here today. What was the first office that you moved into from your parents' place? The first office we moved to, it's funny, I don't remember the exact address, but I remember the office really well. It's 2,600 square feet. It was above a gentleman who was a very high-end kitchen cabinet maker. It was a great space. We never thought we'd grow out of it. We couldn't believe how big it was having moved from the basement. Yeah, we were there for probably, start growing out of it probably 18 months later or something like that. Well, that's pretty quick. I guess much quicker than you anticipated. I guess so. Yeah. I think we had a, I don't know if it was willful or not, but it's really hard to predict where you're going to be in 18 months when you're building one of these companies. I'd say almost impossible unless you've sort of done it before and you know how the ramp goes, which is probably the bucket I'd fall into now. We moved in there. We were filling it up. We had 26 people like stacked on top of each other and ended up moving across the hall and taking another similar space. And I think we were in that office, one across the way for like two years and then moved a building south and got a bunch more space, like 10,000 feet and then 16,000 feet and then had to move again. Forecasting and predicting those things is, is sort of next to impossible. And on top of that, there's the complexity of most commercial leases. They want to sign you up in five-year chunks. When you're growing like that and you can't see far enough in the future, signing up for five years, is it's a nuisance and a challenge, to say the least. So did you sign a five-year lease? We were fortunate to avoid five-year leases, I think, in basically every case until the office we're in now. So we just kind of made that sort of a negotiation point, if you will, and people understood a bit of the history. And we chose spaces that just didn't necessitate that. There's lots of landlords who that's the only choice. And it was basically part of the consideration set when we were choosing space. So that's just important for anyone who's listening, you know, say if they're making that mixed step to try to not look at those long-term leases, because there's always ways that you can get around it as far as maybe you pay more rent instead of, and get a three-year lease or year to year, again, just minimizing risk as much as you can. But I thought it was kind of interesting because even when you had moved out of your parents' place, you're saying you felt good. Everything seemed pretty predictable, it seems like, as far as revenue coming in. But it seems like you did much better than you originally anticipated after 18 months, you had to expand again. You know, we had about four times as many people in like 18 months time, right? So there's that, hey, we're like tripling or better all the time. What I would say, and I know it sounds a little confusing, but we had great predictability in where our revenue would be like next month or the next six months, but almost no ability to forecast that much beyond that. I'm just trying to figure out, yeah, even though it was quote unquote predictable, it still, again, was moving in a positive way and maybe you're exceeding your expectations. So I'm just curious as like how you're able to grow this much? Was it through like SEO stuff or was it something else that was helping you grow so much? We had continued to work on our internet marketing DNA. We had started to get out there and do a lot of sort of word of mouth and stunts. We built the product so we had better conversion rates and had some professional marketers start to come and help us. So I had a background from an agency, but I'd never lived inside a machine that grew by investing in this way and tuning funnels and stuff like that. So we found an early guy who was a far better internet and consumer marketer than I was who joined the team. He really, frankly, had a huge influence over the next few years, kind of growing and scaling the company. It was a great, great guy to work with. 
named Mitch Solway. So that was helpful. And we did partway through moving into the new office, we had a little more capital from sort of angely types who helped us continue to invest in growth. What year is it of when you reached this number? I guess you're in the 20s, you're a year and a half into your new space. Just want to, again, keep it on track as far as knowing how old you were and kind of how far you were into the company. In terms of the company's life, we're probably five or six years in at this point. Even at that point, is everything going how you thought it might have gone in the beginning? I'd say nothing has ever gone as I necessarily thought it would go, meaning I didn't really have expectations. I hadn't really worked anywhere else. I didn't know how companies were built. Everything's first principles for me, right? How do you hire people, sort of structure an organization? Like all this stuff is net new. So none of it was really going according to plan. I think the thing in my head for what our product could be, like we will never actually get there, but we continue to get closer and closer and closer to that. But to this day, we're still not there. There's more left undone than done in my books and in my head. It's a grab bag of things going the way you would hope they would go. I'll also say like, my nature is, I've come to learn one of my strengths is kind of seeing around corners and people would say having vision. I think that's how others would describe it. The flip of that is I really don't spend, like some people spend time on like their three-year plan in terms of where they personally want to be in their career, what they want to be when they grow up. I can see things in the future, I guess, but I actually spend very little time setting expectations for where I'll be. So I love imagining what the product can be, but I don't necessarily love thinking about like, okay, at 50 people, what does this thing look like? That wasn't where my time went. We just kind of figured it out as we went. You're, I guess you're in your early 30s, and if we're talking about 2008-ish or so, if you're about five years in. Sure, early 30s, sounds good. And so how about personal life? Do you have a relationship at all, and how are you able to balance that with your work? I had a long-time relationship from probably my late 20s to early 30s, and actually, let me think about that and just get the chronology straight. I guess I sort of ended that longer term relationship just in the very earliest days of starting FreshBooks. It kind of came to an end. It was sort of time. Wonderful, wonderful woman, but we parted ways. So FreshBooks was your new girlfriend? I guess so. A lot of my energy was certainly going into it. Anyhow, and then, you know, I had another girlfriend in there for a while. She was great too. And then, you know, I guess I met my now wife sort of going back a decade ago and we didn't get married for a little while, but she's been with us for most of the way. Was there any work-life balance, if you will? Because I know you had mentioned it seemed like you had at least a couple of friends in the company. I don't know if y'all were just doing this all the time and then not going out and having fun or what was that balance like? One of the great things about my co-founders, Joan Levi, is we are friends. We happen to be business partners, but the two together is a blast. And they're just made of such good stuff that any challenge that could be a challenge with different people, we just work through like it's no big deal. And so why are we friends? How do we become friends? We did things outside of the workday as well. Very early on, for example, we had a weekend a year where we'd go out of town and just be together. In later years, we'd go to like Vegas for the weekend or whatever it was as like away trips. And that sort of builds history. The thing I would impart on somebody else who's starting a business is you are going to spend more time with the people you work with than you will with your family. And so thinking about do I actually enjoy these people? And can we have fun together? And is that work or is it just natural and easy? These are actually really important questions because I actually think you want to foster friendship in the founders for sure, because it's a pretty thankless and sort of non-rewarding thing to do for a long period of time. So if you're not having fun, <laughs> you haven't surrounded yourself with people who you enjoy, there's a good chance you'll stop because it's harder to persevere under those circumstances. But if you have it, it'll keep you going. Did you ever want to stop? 
I mostly thought about stopping through the lens of I had other ideas I wanted to pursue in our earliest days. Basically, when getting startups rolling, like getting some momentum, that is incredibly hard, like so hard, especially when you don't know anything and we knew nothing. When you have no momentum, you have this false sense of, well, we can do anything. We can go in any direction. We're really agile. But you actually want to do is start getting some momentum in a direction and start heading somewhere. In those days when we didn't really have a huge head of steam yet, and I still had my agency, I was coming up with other ideas. And some of those other ideas may have been very successful. And maybe one day I'll go and do some of them. And they were kind of like a distraction. I was like, oh, maybe I should stop doing this thing because it's not obvious it's going to be successful and go do this other thing. In the end, I kept coming back to doing this. I think for good reason, because this just turns out to be an enormous opportunity. It's important that, like you said, that you're doing something that you enjoy. I mean, that keeps you motivated. But even if you enjoy it in the beginning, doesn't mean maybe 5, 10, 15 years from now that you're going to enjoy it equally every single year, especially if you've been growing your business this long. So there had to be points in time where that you'd feel like you're working too much, or I don't know if you ever went through that. Or like I said, again, the ups and downs is kind of what we want to talk about here. I think the place where I got it wrong and a number of times is, and interestingly, this was mostly previous to FreshBooks. So I had this agency before and I learned some lessons that have helped a lot. And one of those lessons is I just used to run myself into the ground all the time. Like I would work too hard when it was the weekend because I worked from home, like see my desk and oh, maybe I'll just do a couple things. And you spend two hours doing that on your Saturday and then maybe do a little more on Sunday. Come Monday, like you're just not fresh or at least I wasn't. And what I came to learn after repeatedly running myself into the ground and just working too many hours, not giving myself a break and getting far enough away from the work is I, I learned like I just had to have that. I had to have the discipline and separation, but things like seven o'clock, like I just don't check my inbox anymore. I do not work on Saturdays. That basically does not happen. Sundays, it'd be like, okay, Sunday evening, I'll start to look at some stuff to get myself set up for Monday morning so I can hit the ground running. Being disciplined about that, critically important. That whole not looking at the phone, like even now, I don't want to look at a phone after 9 p.m., full stop. It's really easy. There's always something for me to do in there, but I got to put it down. And that lets me kind of wind down a little before bedtime, and then I can get up and I'm better off. And some people can just look at stuff all the time. I find it like really affects me. And so having run myself into the ground so many times before FreshBooks, I had some, this understanding it's going to be a marathon. I knew how to kind of keep myself on the rails. You know, for the most part, believe it or not, I learned that lesson and I was able to apply it here. But I think it's a really hard lesson to learn. So how do you stay disciplined when you, again, you have co-owners or co-founders as well, but you know, when you're the boss, you kind of don't answer necessarily to anyone and like making sure that you still stay disciplined, even if you're growing a successful business at that point in time. I think motivation comes from different places for different people. I love the challenge and personal growth from figuring all this stuff out or trying to, you know, solving the problems, delivering value for people. And then frankly, being responsible and accountable for others and or as we had some angel investors and stuff like that, like I had a great sense of personal, I don't want to use the word obligation because that can feel like a heavy word, but people were entrusting me and that kind of gave me fuel right? And whether it's a customer entrusting me or an employee entrusting me or my mom entrusting me, that was a source of energy for me. I guess I could definitely see if your mom also, that might be my main motivation, at least especially in the beginning, you're like, oh, your mom, if she's co-signing for you to get that line of credit, there's kind of no quitting, right? So I could understand that kind of mindset. But I mean, even over this point in time, what do you think was the hardest thing that you overcame five or six years into the business? There are a lot of places we could have got it wrong. 
in some respects, we surely did. I think the biggest thing we did was persevere. I think almost anyone else would have given up or just stopped because there was really no obvious sense of progress or success. And so I think taking our time and choosing our own metrics and kind of loving what we're doing and sort of having this internal belief that, hey, the numbers are tiny, but if they keep going like this, maybe someday we'll get somewhere. And the customers seem to love us, so there's reason to believe. I think that was the biggest thing we did. And, and, you know, I used to get really twisted around though, you know, really paranoid and thinking like, geez, there's this other really large accounting software company and they have billions of dollars at their disposal and they're just going to come and crush us. Right. And so then I get into that mindset, going to bed at night and be like, oh my God, we need to do this thing tomorrow immediately, or we're going to die. And I literally remember I was trying to get the funds together to go to a conference in Chicago, which probably would have cost like $2,000. It would have been like a quarter to half of the dollars we had left in the bank. I literally said, I don't go to this conference. We're going to be out of business, right? Like this was kind of the level of like, oh my God, I must do this thing. And, and by the way, that was not true, but that was my mindset. Like I was just, what's the next thing? How are we going to unlock this, et cetera, et cetera. And operating under that kind of level of paranoia, <laughs> for survival can lead you to exercise some poor judgment. One thing we did right, I guess, was put some advisors around us. I remember this advisor that I said this, and as soon as I said it, I was like, that's not true, is it? Right? And you start to realize like, okay, I'm glad I took the time to speak with you. Thank you for spending the time with me. Man, I, I'm kind of lost. Like, I want this thing to be successful so badly, but I got to keep my head screwed on straight. I guess we got about 10 years left in the company life as far as like what we haven't talked about yet. Does that sound about right? Okay. Up to where it is today. So I'm just starting where you would want to jump to that you think might help our entrepreneurs the most as far as learning from your experiences here. So one thing I've become fascinated about over the years is structural breakpoints in companies. I'd never really worked in an organization or managed people or anything like that. And there turns out like human beings and the way they organize have these breakpoints and I got a few things wrong along the way that we had to really try and recover from. You know, when you're in the basement and there's like four or six of you, communication's easy. Everyone knows what's going on. I remember one of the awkward breakpoints we came to was I had somewhere between 10 and 20 people. We had our first manager, right? Where not everybody in the business is like reporting to me or what have you. And that was like a weird feeling. And then when you get to around 30, 40 people, we had all these people who'd grown up with us and the culture was really special. and under about 30 people, at least at our company, I think this is true of a lot of other ones, everybody knows everything that's going on all the time. And you cross over that 30 person mark. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, it doesn't happen naturally, right? Communication breaks down and there's meetings in the back room and people are like, what's going on? And that was really hard on the culture of the company. And so we had to do work to more clearly communicate, here's what we're up to, here's what we're thinking. And it wasn't too hard to overcome once we diagnosed the problem and why people were spooked and what was going on. Because you got a bunch of managers, a bunch of stuff going on they're not privy to. But the hardest thing of them all was around 80 people. At 80 people, everything just broke for us. And it's interesting. Another entrepreneur who's a more successful and ahead of me kind of encountered the same thing and you know, sort of told me about it. And so interestingly, I knew it was coming. I just didn't know exactly what to do about it. And what happens around 80 people is all the communication channels that worked up until that point they just break, especially if you've built them kind of from the ground up, as opposed to like top down, hey, I know how this thing runs, we're going to scale. And I literally thought the sky was falling. And people were, it was interesting, like we ran some anonymous survey stuff. There was like vitriol 
in there from one person. And I was like, I can't even believe I'm in the same building as this person. Like what's going on? And what happened was, you know, that's the stage where like, you just can't get by any further without having you know, some of the squishy stuff, like an emission and a vision and a three-year plan. And you got to gather people and organize them, you know, sort of quarterly to walk them through that and keep doing that every quarter about that cadence, definitely no less to remind them of like why we're here and that we're organized and we're working together in this way. And we had not been doing that. We didn't have anything that was exactly like that. And it just, you know, once we started doing that, it really solved a whole bunch of problems. But it was terrifying. I literally thought we were going to lose the company. And it was just basically because I didn't know how to operate something at that scale. Yeah, and it makes sense because, I mean, everything seemed like it was kind of successful to that point in time. But again, if you're like using a certain CRM or using standard operating procedures that you wrote down, if you have to move everyone and up-level everyone to a different system, then you're going to have headaches, right? And at the same time, you still have the same clients that you need to do work for and make sure everything's running smooth. So yeah, I think we can all understand that. And thank you for telling us about those different, what you're saying, 20 people to 30 people to 80 people were kind of your breaking points as far as how things really kind of got different. That's right. And by the way, I think those are breakpoints for almost every business. Now, sometimes you can cruise through some breakpoints. So we actually cruise through like 150 and 200. Like in there, there's usually something else that gets busted. We did that because we chose to fight it. So like Dunbar's number is 150 people where you can't remember everybody's name and stuff anymore. We've done a variety of things here to kind of recognize that's a thing and we don't want it to kind of change the place too much. So I'd start talking about like, hey, we're going to practice a thing here called heads up. Hello. You know, when you're passing somebody, because literally we got to like 151 people and I was walking down the hall and for the first time, somebody just like stared at their feet and I was like, what? just happened. Like, that is so strange. And then it happened again. I was like, it's been a decade and nobody's ever done that. What's going on? Yeah. So recognize, oh yeah, we're at 150 people. This stuff just breaks. And so at all company meetings, we talked about this thing like heads up, hello, which is basically like, you don't need to stop and have a conversation with everybody, but look them in the eyes, give them a little nod, maybe like, hey, how you going? And just keep on going. And that creates an environment where people are not like, walking past each other, staring at their shoes when it's actually a small place. And so we still do that today and we bake it into like our onboarding. Okay, here's a thing that we do here. So look out for it. Mike's going to smile at you and say hello when he goes by and, and by golly, he does. Other people do that too. And that becomes, again, sort of the culture of the place. We did a couple other things along the way in here as well, because again, communication tends to be one of the, the consistent themes and these breakpoints. So around 200 people, we started hosting a weekly meeting that we call shorthands. We actually provide lunch for everybody on Thursdays from 12 to 12.15. People come down, grab their food. And then from 12.15 to 1, we just invite anyone in the company to come up and talk about something that they're involved with. You know, maybe a program, maybe it's a product launch, maybe an event that's coming up. We organize the company. If there's important news, I'll share that there. I also do, it always ends with like an open Q&A. So anybody can ask anything at any time. And that became another thing that we just didn't get into that speed bump that comes around then because the, the communication was there. Again, even you're saying that the 150 breakpoint, if we have that many people in our company, at least those are things that we can look at if we aren't there yet. I think a lot of us are strived to get there at one point. So again, thank you for kind of sharing those insights. But before we get off the call, did you have any like last words of wisdom for anyone who's trying to grow their business? Maybe they're going through a rough time right now and just any suggestions to keep them motivated? It can be really hard to keep your energy up, you know, sort of stay inspired. You know, when you're building a company, you just don't get that much positive feedback. And when something good happens, the highs are high, but you might have a whole bunch of, frankly, negative feedback. Maybe a customer leaves you or an employee or something like that. And those can stack up. It might be seven to one, seven bad to one good. And so I think really listening to yourself in those places where you do find energy, 
I used to get inspired by listening to podcasts about other entrepreneurs, actually. So this is an honor to be here speaking today. That became like my soul food. That's the thing that kept me going. The point is, whether it's listening to podcasts or something else, I think it's really important that you recognize, hey, the job is hard. You get rewarded for doing hard things and for persevering. Like most people who've had success, they'll talk to you about perseverance as much or more than anything else. And so it's part of the gig. And so keep moving, but invest in yourself and try and find ways to top up your tanks, to seek out and spend time to have inspiration. Maybe that's going for a walk and listening to music. I did that a lot late at night to clear my head up and get ready for the next day. You need to find that. You basically have to take care of yourself. You have to take care of yourself. And if you're really down the dumps, maybe you're not taking care of yourself. So think about that. Exercise, sleep, food, time with friends, whatever it is for you, do that so you have the energy to keep going and you can be, uh, you know that you put your best into it. And kind of expanding on that is like, yeah, I think the hardest part, it sounds like over and over again, is just like more the emotional stuff than the business savvy stuff, right? As far as like keeping yourself even keeled and yeah, today might have sucked, but you got to go through the next day and things will get better. So it sounds like that's kind of the same thing that you dealt with uh, growing your company as well. The biggest battle is between your ears. Good luck. And so if anyone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach you, Mike? You can get me by email at mike at freshbooks.com, but probably best at Twitter at mikemcdermott.com. Well, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, Austin, thanks for having me. If you're looking for other tech-based interviews, then consider episode 60 with Cam Duty, episode 55 with Thorne Rodriguez, or episode 50 with Max and Pedro from Winding Tree. By becoming a Patreon member, you'll get these monthly exclusive episodes that only Patreon members get. And also by becoming a member, I mean, it helps us out financially, and we do really appreciate that. But on top of that, it actually motivates us and my team because we actually get an alert notification on our phones every time we get a new Patreon member. So it really does help to know that we're actually helping you guys with your businesses. So uh, if you don't mind, check us out, become a Patreon member. And again, you'll get some cool perks as well. So thanks for listening to this interview.